We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Well, good morning again. I want to join Brent in welcoming you all and wishing you a happy new year. Uh, So grateful to be spending the last day of 2023 uh, together with you, worshiping this morning. Uh, My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we're going to talk about how to make the most out of 2024, more specifically, how not to waste 2024. Uh, This is the season of New Year's resolutions. Why do we make resolutions? Because we want to make the most of our time, the most of our lives, the most of the new year. Uh, We don't want to waste it. And according to Forbes, the top five resolutions in this order are number one, to improve your fitness. Number two, to improve finances. Number three, to improve mental health. Number four, to lose weight. And number five, to improve your diet. It's a little problematic that improving, uh, losing weight goes above improving your diet. You kind of need to improve your diet before you lose weight. Uh, But these are are resolutions. And I don't know if you make resolutions, uh, if this is a tradition that you follow. Uh, Whether you make resolutions or not, I am pretty confident that no one starts the new year saying, I hope I waste this year. I hope this will be the worst year ever. Whether we do it formally by creating resolutions, all of us have goals, we have expectations for the new year, hopes for the new year, hopes that this year will be better than last year. Uh, Unfortunately, even if you're very good at making and keeping resolutions, on average, people only keep their resolutions into the first three months of the new year. Uh, and that's, that's not great, but you know what's even worse that, than failing to keep your resolutions? What's even worse than failing to keep your resolutions is succeeding in keeping the wrong resolutions. Uh, Stephen Covey, he, he put it this way. He said, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step just gets you to the wrong place faster. Uh, D.L. Moody, he said, our greatest fear should not be failure, but succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. So what what if you got everything that you wanted for this new year, but when you looked back at the end of it, realized that you were not where you wanted to be, that, that it was all a waste? Wouldn't that be the worst thing? 
Well, the Bible tells us that there is one thing that we need more than all the other things, one resolution, one goal, one hope, one expectation, one thing to aim our lives at. And if we have this one thing, we will have everything. If we have this one thing, we will lack nothing. And this one thing is love. It's love. The Bible says that if you have love, then you will have nothing. If you lack love, you will have nothing. If you have love, you'll have everything. If you lack love, you, you will have nothing. Uh, so how do you do this? How do you get this love into your life? How do you live a full new year that will be full of purpose and meaning and significance? Well, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at why we need love, where to aim your love, and how to get love. Uh, let's start with why we need love. Uh, the Apostle Paul starts this passage by saying very clearly that we are nothing without love. And he says this in three ways. Uh, look at the first three verses. In verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you ever seen a symphony and watched the one person in the back with the cymbals? That was me in band, all right? And it is the worst instrument you could play in a symphony because you, you, you're going to have one or two chances where you get to clang your cymbals. You have that one or two moment, and then it's over. And it's over, right? You don't, no one wants to be the person clanging the cymbals. Paul says if you, you could do these incredible things, speaking the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you're just a clanging cymbal. Nobody wants to be a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, he says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I mean, isn't this the kind of faith that every Christian wants to have? A anyone of faith. D doesn't everyone who has faith want to have the kind of faith that can move mountains? And Paul says, you could have this kind of faith, but if you do not have love, you are nothing. You are nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain everything. Isn't giving money to the poor a good thing? How can Paul say that if you give everything that you have to the poor, you could still be nothing? Why is Paul so harsh? Why is he so black and white? He could have said, if you do all these things, but you do not have love, then you still have room to grow. He could have said, you could do all these things, but if you don't have love, you are incomplete. He could have said, if you do all these things, but you don't have love, you could still be so much better. You have more potential that you could live up to. Paul doesn't say any of these things. He's black and white. He says, if you do not possess love, you could do all these things, and you are nothing. Why is he so harsh? Well, the reason he's being so harsh is because you are not what you do, you are not what you know, you are not what you have, you are not even what you believe or what you give, you are what you love. You are what you love. 
And the Bible says this over and over again. Look at Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The writer is saying that we are what we love. Everything that we do flows out of our hearts, out of our loves. Matthew 15, 16 says Jesus, uh, in, in, in Matthew 15, 16, Jesus says that we are not defiled, meaning that we are not made dirty or unclean by what goes inside of us, but what comes outside of us, out of our hearts. You are what you love. If your life is a mess, because it's because your heart is messy. Uh, Philippians 1.9, look at how Paul starts this letter to the Philippians. He doesn't start by telling the Philippians all the things that they need to do. He prays that your love may abound more and more. You are what you love. The 4th century theologian Augustine said, wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. What is he saying? He's saying that love is like gravity that pulls you into the direction that it wants you to go. But the problem is that too often our loves pull us in the wrong direction. Matthias Dalsgaard uh, wrote this book called Don't Despair, and it's a book about a Lutheran pastor who writes letters to his nephew whose life is falling apart. And in this letter, he tells his nephew that his life, he is living his life as if he's building a building on quicksand. And listen to what he says to his nephew. He says, you can't compensate for having a foundation made of quicksand by building a new story on top. But this person takes no notice and hopes that the problem down in the foundation won't be found out if only the construction on the top keeps going. He's saying that so many of us live our lives in this way. Our love is pulling us in the wrong direction, and we feel like we're sinking. We feel like we are not good enough. We feel like we do not have worth. And to, 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 to make it look as if we are not sinking, we keep building on the top. We keep building additional stories on our life. Because our greatest fear is that other people would see how much we are sinking, but it doesn't work because that sinking feeling that you are not enough always shows. It looks like overwork, or it looks like showing off, or it looks like broken and strained relationships, or it looks like feeling like you have no energy to help anybody else except yourself. We we, we, our loves pull us in the wrong direction. Our loves sometimes do not give us meaning because they're pulling us down instead of pulling us up. What about giving to the poor? Paul says you could give everything that you have to the poor, but if you do not have love, you gain nothing. How could he say this? Giving to the poor is an important thing. And it is so much more meaningful than just trying to build your life up into something great. Um, how could Paul say that giving to the poor can make us nothing? There's this haunting scene at the end of Schindler's List. And I'm going to spoil the movie. Schindler saves lots of people, right? Um, but there's a haunting scene. Uh, Oscar Schindler is such an interesting character based on uh, a real person 
who is a successful businessman uh, in Germany during Nazi Germany, during the World War II, and he ends up saving over a thousand people's lives, the lives of over a thousand Jews who are headed to concentration camps. And at the end, he's standing in the presence of many of the people that he's saved, and he's haunted. Uh, one of his closest friends comes to him and he says, there are 1,100 people here who are alive because of you. Look at them. But Schindler looks at the people and he starts to panic. He starts stammering. He says, if I had more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. This car, this car, that could have been 10 people. This pen, this pen, two people right there. It, it, this gold, two more people. And, and instead of being filled with joy, Oscar Schindler is haunted by all the people that he could not save. And here's the thing, if the reason you help the poor, if the reason you help other people is so that you could feel good about yourself, it will never last because there is too much need. There is more need than any of us could ever meet. And you will end up haunted, you will feel empty, and you'll be burned out. So how can we get the kind of love that makes us something? How can we aim our love in such a way that we do not feel like nothing? This brings us to the second thing we're going to look at this morning, where to aim your love. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, which is the verse right before this passage, Paul writes, I will show you the most excellent way. And so Paul is saying, not all loves are equal. There is an excellent way to love. There is a right way to love. There is a kind of love that will make your life worth something. And then right after this passage, starting in verse 4, Paul goes into this beautiful poetic description of love, which is probably one of the most famous and well-known passages in the Bible. It's the passage that's read at so many weddings. Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. What is Paul saying about love. He's saying that we need to aim our love at people who do not deserve it. We need to love in a way that requires patience, kindness, humility, honor, selflessness, forgiveness, truth, trust, hope, perseverance. You need to love in a way that makes you want to give up, but you don't. And this is the kind of love that every single person in this room needs. We need this love from others. And this is also the kind of love that we all long to give. We wish we could love in this way. And we are nothing without this kind of love. Why? Because love, by definition, is undeserved. 
The moment you feel like someone needs to deserve your love, you no longer have love. And there's this really amazing scene in the movie AI. It's a really old movie, Stanley Kubrick movie. It's about a android boy uh, whose name David, who was programmed to give love and affection to these, this couple. Uh, and this couple has a boy, a young boy, who has an incurable disease who is about to die. And they get this robot boy, David, who loves them unconditionally. But in a, in a shocking twist, the real boy is cured, and he comes back home. And it doesn't take long before the real boy comes home that David is kicked out. And David finds himself unhoused, fending for himself in the scary world. And he comes across this older robot named Joe. And Joe tells David, don't trust people. Humans hate us. And, and David says, my mommy doesn't hate me because I'm special and unique because there's never been anyone like me before. Mommy loves Martin. That's the real boy. M mommy loves Martin because he's real. And when I am real, Mommy is going to read to me and tuck me in and sing to me and listen to what I say. And she will cuddle me. And she will tell me every day, a hundred times a day, that she loves me. And then Joe just looks at David with this blank stare. And he says, your Mommy doesn't love you. Your Mommy loves what you do for her just like so many of my customers love what I do for them. Your mommy doesn't love you. This is actually our greatest fear, isn't it? Our greatest fear is that people only love us because we are useful to them. And the moment we stop being useful, the moment we show how much we are sinking, the moment we show how broken and messed up we are, we will cease to be loved. But that is not how love works. Love is patient and never gives up on you. Love is kind. It, 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 is more, it is more good to you than you could ever possibly deserve. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor. Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Love always perseveres. It may feel good to be loved because of how good-looking you are, but what everybody truly, deeply wants is to be loved even when they look their worst. It may feel good to be loved when you're on the top of the world, but what everybody really needs is someone who will love them when they are, they've hit rock bottom. This is what we all need more than anything else, an unconditional love, a love that is undeserved. What we all want is in the words, the immortal words of J-Lo, someone who will say, my love don't cost a thing. <laughs> we need this undeserved love because love by definition is undeserved. Paul says, aim your love at people who do not deserve it. If you want your life to be full and full of significance, if you want your life to be worth something, aim your love at those who do not deserve it. And this is the kind of love our city needs more than ever. 
Because love says, hate oppression, but love the oppressor. Hate poverty, but love the poor. Hate the murder of police officers, but love the cop killer. Hate police brutality, but love the police. This is the kind of love that this world knows nothing about, an undeserved love, and a love that will not stop until everything is made whole and everything is made new. What if you made it your New Year's resolution to love in this way? You might lose some weight this year. You might save some money this year. You might eat a little bit better. You might get a little bit stronger. But none of those things will change your life. But if you could, even for three months, love in this way, it would change everything. It would change your life. It would change your relationships. It would change the way that you deal with trauma and hurt and injustice. It would change everything. And if the city was filled with people who loved in this way, it would change Oakland. How do we do this? Who can do this? We can't even keep a New Year's resolution for three months. Who can love in this way? Well, you need to know where to get love, which brings us to the last thing we're going to look at today. How do we get the strength to love those who do not deserve our love? Well, we don't get it from ourselves. We don't get it from other people. We don't get it from guilt. We don't get it from idealism. You could only give what you have, and the only person who can give us this kind of perfect, undeserved love is God. Which means before you could aim your love at anyone else, before you could even aim your love at God, you need to see how God has aimed his love at you in Jesus. Listen to what Paul says near the beginning of his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A Christian is someone who says, I have nothing but Jesus. And it's incredible that Paul writes these words because if you look at his life, it looks like he had so much more than just Jesus. Paul was an educated man. How could he say that I know nothing except Christ crucified? He was educated. He studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest rabbis of the first century. He was an apostle, one of the leaders of the early church. He planted more churches than anyone else in the first century. He wrote most of the New Testament. How could he say that he had nothing but Jesus? Because this is what a Christian says. A Christian says, I have nothing, nothing, nothing that I have done, nothing that I know, nothing that I have, nothing that I have given is anything Jesus is everything. It's what we've been singing about all morning. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. 
My heart will sing no other name. Jesus, Jesus, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever reign. A Christian is someone who says that they have nothing but Jesus. And this is so hard to do. It's so hard to do, especially when you see all that you lack. Before I came to Resurrection Oakland, I was part of another church plant. I planted a church not far from here, and we started extremely small. Uh, we were what I used to call a scary small church. We had about 12 people, including my family. And uh, it was, you know, you can't grow when you start a church that small. People are afraid and intimidated. And uh, a couple months in, I already wanted to quit. And uh, there was a mentor that I met with regularly, and I would talk to him about ideas. I would balance strategy. And then on this one occasion, I told him, I have nothing. I have nothing. I can't sleep. Nothing is working. People come. People leave. No one comes back. We're not growing. I think this wasn't meant to be. And he said, Dave, you think that because the church is not growing, you're a failure, but none of that matters. And I looked at him. I said, I, it matters a little bit. <laughs> People have given to this church. People have like, joined this team wanting to be a part of what God was doing. I have a family to feed. I've got three little kids. Um, it matters a little. And he says, no, Dave, none of that matters. What matters is that you're loved by God. What matters is that you've been accepted, that you've been forgiven, that you've been justified, that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. What matters is that God calls you his son. That's what matters. Nothing else matters. And I'll tell you, it, it changed me. And it's what I needed to hear. Because you can get to a place where you are incapable of seeing the love of God? Have you ever been in that place? Have you ever said to God, I know that you love me, but what I really need right now is more money. What I really need now is a better career. What I really need now is to get better from this illness. What I really need now is to stop feeling so lonely. What I really need now is for my life to become a little bit better. What I really need now is an end to all the family drama and all the drama in my life. What I really need are just some friends that I can count on. Have you ever gotten to a place where you were unable to see the love of God in your life, where you say to God, I know you love me, but, but what I really need is not your love. What I really need is all these other things. In the morning service, somebody asked me afterward, I realized I didn't close the loop on their story. They said, what happened to your church? Well, I was there 12 years. I didn't quit. And a big part of that was learning and relearning what it meant to be loved by God. Do you know what it means to be loved by God? Do you know what it means that God loves you in a way that you could never deserve? Do you know what it means for God to say, you deserve 
rejection, but I give you acceptance. You deserve judgment, but I give you forgiveness. You deserve death, but I give you life. Do you know what it means that this, this is true, not because it's, it, it just sounds good, but that God makes it true by coming into history, coming in the flesh, in a real person, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you and I can know that God loves us, that he gives us a love that none of us could ever deserve. Back in 2002, Fred Rogers, who is the creator and star of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, he gave a commencement speech at Dartmouth College. And at the end of his speech, this is what he said to these brilliant and accomplished students. He said, it's you I like, not the things you wear, not the way you do your hair, it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your caps and gowns, they're just beside you. It's you I like, every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new. I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like, it's you, yourself, it's you, it's you I like. In Jesus, God says, it's you I like. I don't like what you have. I don't like you for what you have. I don't like for you for what you've done. I don't even like you for the way that you love me or you love others. I like you for you, just you. And when you get this into your heart, it will turn your life upside down. And over time, you will grow in the ability to say to others, it's you I like. Not what you do for me, not the way you make me feel, it's you I like. And this is how God renews the world through a love that is full and overflowing. And this is what this table proclaims. This table proclaims God's love for you. A love that spills over from your life into the whole world. And one day, a love that will make all things new. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after blessing it, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you communicate your love to us, not only in words, but in a person, in Jesus, who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, and who is coming again. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the unceasing, unyielding, never giving up love that you have given us in Jesus. And we thank you that as much as we can taste this bread and taste this cup, that one day we'll be reunited with him. So, Lord, we pray that whether it is for the first time or just one more time, that you would help us to take in this love, the great love 
of God through Jesus, our Savior, and that it would encourage us and build us out and that it would spill out of us in all kinds of unexpected ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.